Hey everyone, welcome to Fostering Excellence in Agility, the podcast. I'm your host, competitor, coach, and mentor, Megan Foster. I help agility enthusiasts focus on the small details of training and behavior while still having a clear understanding of their big picture goals. Join me as I take you through key elements of dog agility training, competing, and teaching, and how you can take action today to start improving your skills within the sport. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is a super fun episode for me today. We are talking all about agility foundations and the skills that are inside of my agility training program and I want to break them down and talk about how they directly impact my agility training later on. And there's kind of six modules and then lots of different smaller behaviors that go into those. And there's not any certain order to any of these things. Like a really obvious theme in all of my training is that I want to start a lot of different behaviors and then I want to progress each of those behaviors based on what the dog in front of me needs so that I'm always focusing on building towards this really nice balance of pushiness yet self-regulated obstacle and handler focus so that I'm always putting my training energy into the type of training that the dog in front of me needs. So not in any particular order. Let's dive into the first bit, which is targeting. So I really like to teach targeting to young puppies because it can be very puppy friendly, very body friendly, and it just teaches them about moving their bodies and using their bodies in a variety of ways to earn reinforcement. And that's going to help me later on when I'm teaching obstacle skills. They have this kind of wide repertoire of movements that I know how to set up either via how I set up my position in relation to the dog or how I set up my prop usage later on. So I teach nose targeting and I can teach like nose to hand or nose to um, vertical target or nose to target on the ground. And I can use nose targeting to kind of self-regulate, bring the dog into stillness. And I can do that via a duration nose target or a sticky nose target. But I can also teach targeting with a little bit more animation and movement and higher arousal. So I can do like a leaping high hand touch and I can use that to kind of bring a dog's arousal level up a little bit, bring in some more animation and bring in some more movement. I'm going to maybe need both of those skills depending on the dog, but I might already know which one is the priority and which one that I would teach first. For instance, my 14-month-old Border Collie Sprint, she learned the sticky nose target first because I knew that I wanted to have a lot of skills for bringing stillness and self-regulation into her training. And now recently, I've now started adding in the more, you know, pop-up and touch my hand for introducing a little bit more animation to some stationary behaviors, okay? The next thing, another targeting exercise that I do is front feet targeting. So this might look like perch work or just putting your, so putting your front feet on a a raised object. 
This is going to help me potentially teach lineups. It's going to it can to kind of transform into some fitness exercises. And while that's not like that's not my expertise, so it's not in my program. It is important for agility dogs to have some fitness skills so that they can work on those things um, as prevention. And also if they ever need rehab, that's going to be a foundation skill you need for any fitness training. So putting your front feet on things, um, it's also going to kind of fast track any sort of stationing work that you do or any stopped contact work that you do. So then you have the ability to use front foot targets if you need them. It's going to fast track your ability to teach running contacts because they'll know that touching something with their front feet is reinforceable. So it it's puppy friendly and has a wide variety of things that it could turn into later on. I also teach back foot targeting. So this can look like backing up or uh, which is what I use directly to teach my teeter behavior is a backing up behavior. Again, you've got some fitness foundations that comes from back foot targeting. You've got the same types of things. Stopped contacts can be a rear foot behavior. So I can use back foot targeting to teach my four on, my two on, two off. And it's also going to be important in running contact training that they know that their rear feet touching something is reinforceable. As I've kind of already hinted with all of these things, when I'm teaching targeting, I want to introduce both stillness with targeting and movement with targeting. So there's going to be some situations, some props where the prop is going to cue target this and be still. And there's going to be props that I use that cue the dog to mean target this, but keep moving. And that's all going to be set up with prop usage and reinforcement usage and just how I set the stage of that training session in particular. So all of those skills are going to be filed under targeting. They're all going to be very puppy friendly and they're going to have multiple applications for later on in that dog's career. The next kind of foundation uh, set that I look at is what I refer to as stay put versus go. And this is just teaching the dog the ability to cue discriminate between when should I stay still and when should I move again. This is going to directly impact your start line training, any stopped contact training, um, your table training. And I do think that giving the dogs the skill and the concept of knowing when the handler is relevant and when the handler is not relevant and when to listen to the handler and when to follow the handler and when to stay put does directly impact their ability to maintain commitment when they're in motion or maintain commitment to the weave poles. So I think if they learn early on that there are clear cues around when to move, when not to move, when to follow the handler, when not to follow the handler, even when they're just stationary, I do think that that helps them later on when they're in movement. And those are kind of the things that I want to split that into as well, that I want to be able to put my dog into a stationary position and have them discriminate between release cues or stay put cues And I want them to also be able to stop their own motion 
and discriminate between stay put cues versus move cues or go cues. So basically this looks like I can put the dog on the station and I can show the dog the difference in their reinforcement cues, right? So I have some reinforcement cues that mean stay there, I'm going to bring the cookie to you versus reinforcement cues that mean you're allowed to move, go chase that reward. I'm also going to introduce position changes into this work because those are stay put cues, but move a little, right? They're change your position. I'm going to introduce all sorts of things that I refer to as handler irrelevancy, meaning that if I put you in a stay, if I cue a stay put position, so if I cue you to get on your station and maintain your sit behavior and I start moving away, I want them to stay there until I give them a specific verbal cue that means move. And so this is where we get really, really detailed about our clean releases and like I said, the cue discrimination, which is so great for later on when we are teaching very agility specific verbal cues, they already have that ability to listen and respond appropriately. And they also already have that ability to understand that in some situations, the verbal cue overrides the physical cue, right? So the dog's natural response to you walking away from them would be to follow you. They're learning how to override that innate response and wait for the verbal cue that tells them to go. So if they're learning that from the very beginning, it's going to be so much easier to apply that later on when they are very, very excited to go and amped up to play this game. And I can really get creative with stay put versus go. I can, it means that once my dog has the concept, I have, basically I have a start line stay, an informal one immediately from the beginning. And that means that I'm better able to practice things on my own because I can ask the dog for varying amounts of duration and they already have that concept before they even know what obstacles are or any other things are. So I can really increase its value very quickly and increase the intensity and the difficulty very quickly. And that's just a skill that starts very early in my dog's lives and just continues to build so that when I am putting together my formal start line routines, this stay behavior itself is already built for me. I don't have to put any more effort into it. I just have to connect the pieces of the rest of the routine. The third piece of foundations for me is the following the handling and handling on the flat. This is where I just reinforce my puppy or young dog's innate desire to follow my physical cues. This is just reinforcing that when I speed up, you speed up after me. When I turn, you turn with me. So the handling on the flat that I tend to focus on is circles so that I'm practicing my mechanics of maintaining connection with them as I start to turn away. They're practicing staying on the correct side of me. They're having to regulate their stride and speed to make sure that they stay on the line next to me. And I'm also getting to observe, does my dog tend to 
uh, move away from me when I turn in a circle? Do they want to flank me? Do they want to come in close to me? Is their default to want to come in front and try and cut me off? Are they trying to slip behind? This gives me the ability to observe what they're naturally doing in reaction to my motion. And then that way I can get ahead of it later on. Because definitely, especially the younger the puppy that we're doing this with, their genetics are going to show up very quickly in those situations. And we can't change genetics, but we can change our training plans to support what those do- that dog's genetics need in order to have a more clear understanding of the dog and the dog has a more clear understanding of your own handling cues. Obviously, with handling on the flat and following the handling, I'm going to also include turns. And this is just like pulls and pushes, making sure that the dog does react to any changes in direction or any amount of deceleration that I might do. I'm also going to show them some basic handling techniques on the flat. This is mostly, like I said, they already know it. So if you are comfortable and fluent with these handling techniques, it should be pretty easy for the dog to respond. So I will show them a front cross on the flat. I'll show them rear crossing on the flat, how to make those lead changes when I'm behind them versus when I'm in front of them. I'll show them a blind cross on the flat so that I'm confirming for them when it is appropriate and when it is not appropriate to cut behind me which is definitely a really easy way of showing the dog the difference between stay on the shoulder that I'm looking over versus this is when we change to the other shoulder behind my back. So if your dog is doing that or your puppy is doing that, my first step is to show them when it's appropriate and then work my way back from there. And I also show them things on the flat like lap turns or tandem turns or flicks. And if those terms are not... Uh, In your vocabulary, they are essentially turns on the flat where the dog has to turn away from the handler um, in 180 to 360 degrees. So I'm just showing the puppy or the new to agility dog that they can move their bodies in ways that are opposite of where I'm standing. So dogs are naturally wanting to turn towards their handler. So from their very young age, very young in their career, I'm also showing them how to turn away from me and making sure that their bodies are comfortable moving in both directions equally. So showing them this kind of handling on the flat stuff gives me the ability to observe their natural tendencies Do they prefer to turn to the left? Do they prefer to turn to the right? Um, Usually they will work a little bit harder in their their unpreferred direction. So for example, Sprint prefers to turn to the right. So her turns are actually better to the left because she has to think more about them. And so I actually see more effort goes into her left turns, even though she would typically default to turning to the right. So there's some interesting things that you can observe about that and build your training sessions to help balance those things out. The next foundation set of skills that I focus on from the very beginning is the dog's ability to commit and maintain commitment to a variety of things. So the very first thing that I'm doing is making sure that they can commit and remain committed to their reinforcers. So this starts 
as soon as I'm teaching them about what reinforcers are. And that's like the first thing that I work on with my puppies anyways. So once they get pretty good fluency with their reinforcement cues, I'm going to use something like tossed food to start introducing keeping commitment. So if I cue get and I toss a cookie, I'm going to toss it to my right and I'm going to start running to my left. So the dog's learning how to maintain their path towards that cookie and eat that cookie before they run towards me to catch up. And I would break that down, right? I would start at a walk. I would do shorter tosses and I would build up the dog's ability that when I cue something, I need you to do it regardless of what I'm doing. And that is a almost a purely verbal keeping commitment exercise that you can do. And then with pre-placed rewards, I can also make sure that they're following physical cues and maintaining commitment when I've physically cued something as well. And those skills build up very quickly. I make sure that they understand how to commit to and keep commitment first to their reinforcers, but then maybe also I am teaching them how to go around a cone so I can upgrade these keeping commitment skills very quickly. Maybe I've introduced them to a tunnel as they age and get more um, comfortable moving their bodies and get more coordinated. I can introduce keeping commitment on a tunnel. These keeping commitment exercises can progress very, very quickly, but it always starts with keeping commitment to your reinforcer. Then uh, I also introduce a lot of bravery games, and this is very informal. This is just something about my puppy or young dog's like day-to-day life. If I am needing them to be busy doing something while I'm working or need some just time without the puppy, I'm going to keep them busy with a bravery game. I'm going to set something up that they have to kind of navigate to earn their calories for that day. So it might be um, kind of a cardboard puzzle that they have to solve. Maybe if I have a bunch of big boxes, maybe they have to um, move through tunnels of boxes to get to their uh, meal. Maybe they have to move some metal cookie cutters out of the way to get to their meal. So I'm just introducing a lot of sounds and safe, unstable objects and different surfaces to their daily calorie intake. And I'm just kind of keeping an eye on how they respond to that. Do they, I want to make sure that I'm not seeing such a negative reaction that they give up. I want to, and I also don't want to see that I'm not challenging them either. I want them to feel adequately challenged and that they're interested in working towards earning those cookies or their meal that is scattered throughout this bravery game. But I also want to see that are they having any reactions? If they have a reaction, do they kind of just think about it for a second and go, oh, that was no big deal, and keep going? I just want to see how they respond to these types of things so that I can be aware of that when I'm making more formal training sessions. 
one example, this was an unintended bravery game. But when Shrek was a puppy, and he still does this, he likes to flip a metal bowl over and kind of skateboard it around the house, which is a very noisy and not human-friendly game, just FYI. However, it was very cute, and he was a very lively puppy with it. So, of course, I let him do it. But what I was observing is that when he would run the bowl into our baseboard heater, so it was metal on metal, he would have a very huge reaction, and it it would stop the game for him. And it would take him a long time to come back to the game and trust that. And so since this was completely Shrek-guided, I had nothing to do with this, I decided to leave it alone. I wasn't going to give him a bowl and say, go ride your skateboard. I want to see you work this out. Just if he happened to do it, I would pay attention. And over time, I saw that he was reacting less and less to that metal on metal sound, to that crash, to that bang. And so I waited for that, that sound to be a nothing burger to him, to mean absolutely nothing. He knew that that was a sound that was going to happen and his, nothing bad happened to him. His game didn't end. The world didn't end. The sky didn't fall. I waited for that to be no big deal to him before introducing the sounds of a teeter banging. And so that's what bravery games are about for me is that I want to be able to observe my dog's reactions to sounds, surfaces, and things moving or falling, right? Because those are real things that are going to happen in agility. Teeters are going to bang. Teeters are going to move. Dog walks are going to bounce. Bars are going to fall. Wings are going to fall. Things might happen. Maybe fences fall over. Things are going to happen in their lives and in dog sports. And I just want to see if I can help them kind of navigate those things through informal training, just through exploration. And then finally, I also put this in foundations and I refer to it as simple sequencing because I want chaining behaviors together to be something that my puppy experiences from a young age. So all of those skills that I've talked about already in this episode, when they get a tiny bit of fluency, I'm going to start chaining those things together. And it might be that I put them on a station and I release them to a nose touch, right? That's a chain. So they might be on their station. I say touch. They're allowed to move off the station, so they're responding to a go cue, a green light. They touch my hand, and then I mark with maybe I say yep, and I feed them from my hand. So they're already learning how to chain multiple things together at a young age so that reducing reinforcement later is not such a surprise to them. So simple sequencing can also look like station, follow the handling, circle, send to a reinforcer. Right. So that that's sequencing, even though it's not obstacles or um, sequence like your traditional sequencing and coursework type things. It's still teaching the dog the concept of how to string multiple behaviors together for a single payout later on. That's just going to help you 100 percent later on. And it's going to make it so much easier to chain things together for real 
as you add more and more complexity to any of these foundations. So that when you work through all of these foundations, every single one of them branches out into a specific skill that is directly related to agility, like contacts or jumping or handling or ring prep or start lines or something. All of these skills branch out to be, quote, real, unquote, agility eventually. So along the way, I'm able to continue building sequences and chains of behavior that match my dog's abilities, that match what my dog is capable of, so that I'm always practicing those kind of working session and ring prep skills so that maybe as I as my dog is getting older and I'm focusing on ring prep and things, even if I don't have finished behaviors, I have lots of pieces of finished behaviors that I can chain together and practice my ring routines with. So there's just a lot in there that so that I am always able to stack and stagger and interlock and build the behaviors that I want over time. This gives me a lot more flexibility to focus on what the dog needs and still able to progress in the other areas. So if it's a dog that I don't want to put a lot of um, effort, I don't want to do a lot of handling on the flat with for some other reason, I have all these other things that I can progress first and start chaining together first, and then I can go back and add in the handling on the flat when the dog is ready for that, or whatever the thing is that the dog is not ready for. Okay, so as a trainer, this gives you a lot more flexibility in what you train and how you train it. So when you have kind of a broad list of foundation skills that you can kind of be teaching all at the same time, it's a lot easier to build dynamic training sessions and keep things interesting versus a checklist of now teach a nose touch, now teach a spin, now teach a sit, now teach offering the jump. No, we want to be able to train in a lot of different areas at a lot this a lot at the same time so that your dog's education of the game is diverse and that way if your dog really likes following the handling on the flat because you're moving but doesn't really like you know front feet targeting because they're having to move while you're staying still you can help the dog learn about training with you through the things that they enjoy. And that joy is going to carry over to the things that are harder for them. So it it just makes training a lot more interesting and easier for you to progress things. As a competitor, this is going to make it very easy for you to break things back down if you come across a problem in competition. You can always go back and go, okay, what is the base skill of the thing that's causing me a problem? What are the variables that I that my dog is struggling with? And then you can just go back and add those variables to the basic foundation skill that you know that they are going to nail and then increase difficulty over time. So it's going to make things e- it's going to make problems easier to solve when you have very good base foundation skills to go back to. And as an instructor, all of these things matter, right? Because you are the one putting together the training plans for puppies and people new to agility. 
So when you have multiple things to do, it maybe if my plan in a group class is to maybe I'm going to introduce like six things that night, I can choose a targeting exercise, a stay put versus go exercise, a following the handling exercise, a commitment exercise, a bravery game that's just a station that they can do at any time throughout the class. You don't have to even monitor it. It's just set up. And you can show them about sequencing things together based on what they've already mastered in previous weeks. So you can do a huge variety of things and keep the class moving in the correct direction. And it gives you a lot more flexibility in how you individualize for the team in front of you. So each of those foundation skills can be split way down to very, very basics. The dog knows nothing. And it can also be made more and more difficult for the puppy whose owner practices four times a week outside of class or has the owner that is on their seventh dog and they are totally excited and they, they it's very easy for them. So they're progressing very quickly. So having these foundations and having very clear paths in how to progress each of these foundation skills and how to link them together into simple sequences and things like that makes it much easier for you to have a mixed level foundation class. And I will say that it that is the hardest part about teaching is having all those mixed levels. So when I went back and restructured this and broke the foundation skills into kind of these things, it made foundation classes so much easier because I could individualize this skill. Everyone could be doing the same nose target lesson, but each dog could be at a different stage in that skill. And it made it really, really easy and a lot more fun and a lot more interesting and a lot less stressful. (laughs) Okay, that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to SynergyDogSports.com slash community to access bonus content and to get your questions answered via podcast episodes and other social media content. If you'd like to know more about what I'm up to and what's coming up, make sure to bookmark my website, www.SynergyDogSports.com.